Hi everyone, John here, and before you do what I would do in your shoes and mark this re-released episode as played, bear with me for a moment while I explain why I'm re-releasing it. Normally, I'd wait at least a full season before returning to the well of podcasts past, but combining my two-part episode on Texas paleontology and behavior in the fossil record seemed timely for two reasons. First, today, January 15th, 2022, is the 83rd birthday of the Texas Memorial Museum, the site at the core of these episodes. Second, and somewhat more distressingly, that same museum's future is now in jeopardy after its funding was slashed by the state legislature just down the road in Austin. It's hard for me not to take this a bit personally. The museum is neck and neck with the Congress Avenue bat flight as my favorite thing to see in the live music capital of the world. Much more importantly, it's the most important center for the study of Texas paleontology. I highlighted just a few of the stories told by fossils from the Lone Star State in this episode, and I only scratched the surface of the state's paleo-heritage, and the treasure trove that is the museum's collections. Among so many other things, it's one of only four collections in the world that contain identified specimens of Machairodus lahaiis hupup, the giant saber-toothed cat I helped describe last year, so again, you can see why I'm taking this a bit personally. There's a petition circulating to refund this gem, and if museums mean as much to you as they do to me, you can find it and add your name at change.org. I have to admit I have my doubts as to how useful online petitions are, but the museum is a place that all nature lovers should appreciate, and that all Texans should be proud of. So especially if you're a voter in the Lone Star State, it couldn't hurt to sign on. Regardless, if these episodes are new to you, I hope you enjoy them. And if they're not, no worries, there's a new episode headed to your feed on Tuesday. Just one quick note for any of you who are continuing to listen. This episode has some imperfect sound editing. In particular, some of the music I use between segments is Tejano music by Los Tex Maniacs. I love it, as I love all brass-heavy music, but there are a couple of places where the difference in volume between my voice and the Tex Maniacs horns can be a bit jarring, so just be aware of that, especially if you're listening with earbuds in. The destinations discussed in this episode are on the traditional lands of the Kowalwitekan, Lipan Apache, Tonkawa, Humano, and Comanche peoples. Rising from a hilltop above the University of Texas in Austin is an Art Deco castle keep. Walk past the animal statues that stand guard outside, mustangs to the west, a saber-toothed cat to the east, and you'll enter this castle's great hall, illuminated by tall, narrow windows high up the wall. The castle, actually the Texas Memorial Museum, even has a resonant dragon, or at least the closest thing that evolution has ever given us to one. Before we meet this beast and the treasure it guards, let's take a moment to consider dragons. Pull people from different periods of history and in different parts of the world, and you'd probably get widely divergent thoughts on what they look like and what they signify. In Christian Europe, they might symbolize evil and be the subject of a quest for a saint or a noble knight. In classical China, they might be a sign of good luck or a symbol of imperial power. In Mesoamerica, the dragon-like feathered serpent, Quetzalcoatl to the Aztecs, was associated with the wind and was the patron of culture and civilization. Wherever and whenever you go, dragons are powerful symbols, and, because of the wide range of things they can symbolize, they remain that way even in the globalized world of the 21st century. We can assign so many roles to dragons because of one convenient trait. They don't exist. As mythical animals, 
They can look the way we want them to, and we can adapt them to be anything from national emblems to characters in the fantasy novel. Sometimes, though, nature offers up tantalizing clues of animals every bit as fantastic as dragons, and the long-extinct animal that dominates the Texas Memorial Museum is one of these. The skeleton that will almost certainly cause your jaw to drop upon entering the room is actually a replica. Its real fossils, at 66 million years old, too fragile and important for public display, were discovered in Big Bend National Park in the 1970s. More remains have been found elsewhere in recent decades, fleshing out our picture of one of the most spectacular animals ever to have lived. It was a pterosaur, a cousin of the dinosaurs, and one of only four groups of animals to take to the air. Like other flying animals, bats, birds, and insects, it has many adaptations for flight. A lightly built body, well-developed attachments for muscles, 3D vision, and, of course, wings. There are some oddities that set this animal apart, such as its long yet rigid neck bones and enormous skull. But when you walk into the Great Hall, what strikes you first is not the evolutionary story told by its anatomy, but its overwhelming size. An insect or a bat is large if it's as big as a good-sized drone. The largest flying birds could be compared to a hang glider. This creature, until fairly recently thought to be the largest flying animal ever, most closely matches the wingspan of an airplane. Its almost unbelievable size and its discovery just across the Rio Grande from Mexico prompted its discoverers to name it after Mesoamerica's feathered serpent, Quetzalcoatlus. The combination of weird anatomy, gigantism, and a memorable name have made Quetzalcoatlus a paleontological celebrity, and, especially if you or anyone you know has fossil-obsessed children, you're likely to have seen reconstructions of it before. What it's doing in those reconstructions, though, may vary as widely as do the behaviors of dragons in myth. It might be shown eating fish, or carrion, or even live dinosaurs. Its habitat might be a coastline, or it might be a Serengeti-like plain, and it's as likely to be shown shuffling across that landscape on all fours as it is to be soaring above it. This uncertainty surrounding the behavior of Quetzalcoatlus is due to the fact that we know it only from fossilized bones and can't observe it interacting with other organisms and with its environment. Does this mean that the behavior of pterosaurs is doomed to remain in the realm of guesswork? Is any attempt to reconstruct an extinct animal's behavior as much a work of fiction as the dragons of Tolkien and George R.R. R. Martin? Fortunately, the answer to both questions is no, and if you want to explore the clues and tools available to us to put flesh on the bones of long-dead animals like Quetzalcoatlus, all you have to do is head downstairs to the basement of the Texas Memorial Museum and the fossil treasure trove stored there. Welcome aboard the Voyages podcast. I'm John Orkut, and in this episode, we're traveling to the Texas hill country and the cities on the plains below. This is a landscape rich in fossils, many stored in the museums of Austin, San Antonio, and Waco, but many still visible among the sage and cedar of the Texan countryside. There are few better places in the world to see firsthand the evidence that allows paleontologists to reconstruct long-dead animals as living, breathing individuals. This evidence exists in three main forms. The bodies of fossil animals themselves can provide hints as to how that animal might have functioned in life, as a series of cat fossils from a cave outside of San Antonio shows. We'll explore this case study today, which in many ways is a sequel to our previous episode, with which it shares a focal group of organisms, several concepts, and even a destination. Where a fossil is found and how it is preserved can shed light on how it interacted with its environment. 
as illustrated by an Ice Age bone bed outside of Waco. In some rare but spectacular cases, direct evidence of an organism's lifestyle is preserved in the rock record. And these traces are so common in the Texas Hill Country that the region has become one of the most important in the world for understanding the behavior of dinosaurs. The fossils of Central Texas tell these stories so well that, in order to stick to a half-hour runtime, I've split this episode in two, and we'll explore the links between geology and behavior on the first Thursday in August. Before we can make sense of any of this evidence, though, we need to travel to the hills themselves to understand what makes the region so rich in important fossils. extending west from a line between Austin and San Antonio. It's a beautiful landscape, a biologically diverse scrub forest where eastern species like bald cypress and soft-shell turtles overlap with western ones such as cacti and javelinas. It's home to farms, ranches, and increasingly wineries, inspiration for a long list of musicians headlined by Willie Nelson, and the birthplace of President Lyndon Johnson. This unique ecosystem and its impact on Texan history and culture deserves an episode of its own, but for now let's focus on the rocks that form the landscape and the fossils they contain. These fossils are so common and so well preserved for three geological reasons, all tied to water. Today the landscape is dry, almost desert-like in places, but around 115 million years ago, Texas was at the southern end of an inland sea that stretched north to Canada. The best evidence for this are the fossils of marine organisms that are routinely found throughout the region, some of which are on display in all three of the major museums in the area, the Texas Memorial Museum in Austin, the Mayborn Museum in Waco, and the Witte Museum in San Antonio. It was in these seas that the rocks of the hill country were first deposited as mud rich in the mineral calcium carbonate. Carbonate dissolves in cold water, meaning it wouldn't build up in temperate or deep oceans. So its presence in central Texas tells us that the waters here were warm and shallow. They were so shallow, in fact, that parts of the region were occasionally left high and dry along the eastern coastline of the ancient island continent of Laramidia. We'll come to the most compelling evidence for this sea level change in the second part of this episode. Over time, the carbonate mud of the Cretaceous Sea hardened into limestone, the rock that makes up the majority of the hill country's bedrock today. In flatter areas, these rocks are overgrown with vegetation and soil, but thanks to another interaction with water, outcrops of limestone occur throughout the hill country. Unlike the mountains of West Texas where Quetzalcoatlus was found, the hills of Central Texas were not pushed up by volcanoes or tectonic activity. Instead, they were sculpted by running water. To the north and west of the hill country lies the Edwards Plateau, a vast, flat highland. Water runs off the plateau towards the Gulf of Mexico by way of one of the hill country's three major rivers, the San Antonio, the Guadalupe, or the Colorado. As it flows, it erodes away the limestone into the gullies, cliffs, and canyons that give the hill country its name. You can see evidence of this throughout the region, such as at Guadalupe River State Park, where the river is carved an especially impressive set of bluffs. 
And this erosion isn't just taking place on the surface, but underground as well. As water seeps into the ground here, it dissolves surface deposits of limestone, leaving behind the craggy landscape known as karst. Further below the surface, it hollows out the cave systems which dot the hill country, and parts of the plains below. Besides creating a captivating landscape, all this erosion exposes fossils from the Cretaceous Seaway. But as we'll see in the next segment of this episode, it also creates environments in which younger fossils can be preserved. So too does a third unusual feature of the hill country's water cycle. The scrub forests here are diverse, but in most areas large trees are few and far between, and the soils seldom develop to more than a few inches of depth. Thick soils and extensive plant root systems act like sponges, soaking up rainwater in large volumes. But in central Texas, when rain falls, it continues to flow along the surface, meaning that just a little precipitation can lead to flash floods. And as anyone who's experienced a Texas thunderstorm can tell you, rain doesn't always fall lightly here, meaning that the low-lying areas at the base of the hills are prone to occasional catastrophic flooding. Not sure how that's relevant to the behavior of extinct animals? Stick around for the second part of this episode. In the meantime, though, let's return to Austin and the basement of the Texas Memorial Museum to examine how fossils themselves can provide clues to how ancient animals lived. directly beneath the Great Hall and its titanic Quetzalcoatlus is a classic university museum, packed cheek to jowl with ancient Texan vertebrates. Though its most beautiful fossil is not a vertebrate at all, but a slab of small sea stars found locally and named Austin Aster in honor of the live music capital of the world. Skeleton-heavy museums like this often get compared to zoos or menageries, but of course there's one crucial difference. Everything in this gallery is dead for hundreds of thousands if not millions of years. In a real zoo, or in the wild, or even at home with a pet, when you see an animal, you're seeing an organism that operates as it does because of three aspects of its biology. The animal's morphology, its physical structure and anatomy, is the easiest to observe. There's also its physiology, the functioning of the various systems, such as digestion or respiration, that allow the animal to survive and reproduce. And finally, there's behavior, the way that animals respond to and interact with their environment. Take, for example, the armadillos you're likely to see if you spend much time in the hill country. Their diet, a physiological trait, consists mostly of insects. They've evolved several morphological traits related to this diet, most visibly their large claws that are useful for tearing apart the nests of termites and ants and for grubbing insects out of the soil. Their large clawed arms allowed them to excavate burrows, a behavioral trait. This lifestyle, in turn, may explain why they have such poor eyesight, a physiological trait that could itself impact other aspects of armadillo biology. When we look at a living animal, we can observe all three of the engines powering this complex feedback loop in action. When you look at a fossil, though, you're seeing just one, morphology, and in almost all cases, some, if not most, of that morphology is missing. But because morphology, physiology, and behavior all interact with and shape one another, a single leg of the tripod can provide clues about the other two. Sometimes the leap is a very easy one to make. The presence of fins on the Onion Creek Mosasaur, one of the most impressive denizens of the Cretaceous Seas of Texas, means that it was almost certainly a swimmer, 
while the wings of Quetzalcoatlus are pretty compelling evidence that it could fly. These are straightforward examples of comparative anatomy, the field from which paleontology was born. The central tenet of comparative anatomy is, in effect, that if two animals have similar morphologies, it's likely that they had comparable behavior and physiology as well. Such comparisons can work even in distantly related animals. The giant Texan amphibian Ariops, for example, is not related to modern alligators, but the flattened heads and short limbs of both animals support the idea that Ariops lurked in shallow water and ambushed prey from there, as do living crocodilians. Often, though, the fossil record yields an animal that can't really be compared to anything alive today, and Texas is especially rich in such oddities. What can we make of the sail-backed mammal relatives Demetrodon and Adaphosaurus, the trombone-like crest of the duck-billed dinosaur Parasaurolophus, or the flattened tusks on the lower jaw of the elephant relative Amybelodon? And then there's Homotherium, the animal at the center stage of the Texas Memorial Museum's fossil gallery. It's a cat, and a very big one, found in large numbers at a site just outside of San Antonio. Friesenhahn Cave is one of the many caverns carved out of central Texas's limestone by groundwater, and as with many caves, the stable, protected conditions within proved to be ideal for preserving Ice Age fossils. Thousands of individual fossils have been removed from the site, a huge number of them coming from Homotherium, meaning that we have no shortage of information about the animal's morphology. Some comparisons are easy to make. Like all cats, it has huge blade-like molars that clearly indicate an all-meat diet. An enlarged nose and the portion of the skull that encases the inner ear suggest its senses were as keen as those of modern lions, leopards, jaguars, and even house cats. But not everything about Homotherium has a clear analog in its living relatives, as any visitor to the museum can clearly see from a quick glance at the jaw and its most unusual feature, a pair of elongated saber teeth. Unlike many of the more obscure animals in the Texas Memorial Museum's collections, when I talk about saber-toothed cats, it's likely that everyone listening can picture the animal I mean. The image that's most likely to have sprung to mind is the famous Smilodon, so well known from the tar pits of Rancho La Brea. But it's just the best known and most studied saber-tooth. See the previous episode of Voyages for the story of another one. In fact, not only were there several species of saber-toothed cats, but many other groups of predatory mammals have evolved sword-like canines as well. In today's world, though, the only species that even comes close is the clouded leopard of Southeast Asia, and its teeth are a far cry from those of Smilodon and Homotherium. This means that we have no living species to which we can compare the canines of saber-toothed cats, but that doesn't mean that everything you've ever heard about saber-toothed behavior is wild speculation. There are other tools available to paleobiologists that allow us to reconstruct behavior based on fossils. One of these areas of study is biomechanics, in which a paleobiologist approaches an animal almost as though it were a machine, asking what forces might act upon it, what forces it could exert, and what this might tell us about its physiology and behavior. In some cases, this can be done by literally building a machine that mimics the animal being studied. There's a fantastic example of this in the world of saber-toothed paleobiology arising from the work of H. Todd Wheeler, who built what he calls RoboCat, a robotic mock-up of a saber-tooth. By fitting RoboCat with teeth appropriate to different cats, such as Smilodon and Homotherium, and by using them to bite into an animal carcass, 
he can observe the effects that those teeth have and predict how they might or might not have been used in life. When fitted with homotherium teeth, Wheeler saw that the robocat didn't just puncture holes in the carcass, but that its canines were very effective at enlarging the wound as they moved through the flesh. This led him to suggest that unlike modern cats, which generally crush or suffocate their prey with their robust teeth and powerful jaws, homotherium may have been more of a hit-and-run predator, causing significant damage with a single bite that would severely injure its target. In the 21st century, of course, most biomechanists don't make actual physical models like RoboCat, instead carrying out their research using digital 3D models of the fossils in question. The detailed, repeatable, and wide-ranging studies this makes possible have revolutionized biomechanics. A lot of uncertainty and debate remains, though, especially when it comes to Smilodon, whose canines were not just extremely long, but very thin, making them a seeming liability when it comes to grappling with prey. There's at least one well-known specimen that's lost one of its canines, though whether this was the result of hunting remains unknown. Fortunately, other parts of the body, and a related field of paleobiology, have shed light on how different saber-tooth species might have hunted. cat play, and you'll notice that they mainly use their arms. They differ in this way from dogs and their wild relatives, which primarily use their mouths to capture prey and manipulate objects. And because of this, cats tend to have larger, more robust arms relative to their body size. You can see these beefy arms on an even larger scale in the Friesenhan cave homotherium, and if you had a Smilodon skeleton handy, you'd see that it follows this trend to an almost absurd degree. You might find yourself asking what caused this evolution of super-robust arms in some saber-tooths, and if so, you're thinking like a functional morphologist. Where biomechanics studies an animal as though it were a machine, functional morphology studies the same animal through the eyes of an engineer. The phrase form follows function is usually applied to architecture, but the same idea is at the heart of funky morph, as those of us in the know like to call it. The idea is that a species' morphology has evolved either in response to its physiology or to its interactions with the world around it. In other words, its behavior. A detailed study of that species' morphology, then, how it's changed through time and how it compares to that of other species, could allow us to identify the factors that drove its evolution and reconstruct its behavior. Sabretooth arms provide one of the best, and one of my favorite, examples of how such research can be carried out. We owe a lot of what we know about the function of saber-tooth arms to the work of Julie Meachin, who compared canine size to a number of measurements of arm bones of cats and related species, both extinct and extant. A clear pattern emerged. While all cats have robust arms, those of living conical-toothed cats and their fossil relatives are more lightly built than the arms of saber-toothed cats. What's more, by most measurements of arm beefiness, Homotherium is more similar to modern lions and tigers than it is to its slender-toothed relative, Smilodon. When you look at the skeleton of Homotherium posed dramatically in the center of the Texas Memorial Museum's fossil hall, then, you may be looking at an animal that, despite its toothiness, could have hunted in a very similar way to modern big cats, grappling with its prey with its arms but killing with its mouth. Smilodon, on the other hand, while a fairly close relative, may have relied much more heavily on subduing its prey with its arms before unsheathing its more fragile sabers. This is still an ongoing debate, though, 
and one that takes new twists and turns every time a new discovery is made, every time our picture of saber-tooth evolution becomes a little clearer, and every time new insight is gained into the environments in which Homotherium and its relatives lived. One such insight was published in the midst of my prep for this episode, and provides not only a great example of one more way of wresting behavioral clues from fossils, but an unusually clear window into the life of predators and prey in Ice Age San Antonio. Homotherium isn't the only animal from Friesenhan Cave, which has also yielded bones of possible prey such as tapirs, horses, mammoths, and bison. And other sites from the prairies and hills of central Texas have produced camels, deer, mastodons, and javelinas. But which of these were the favored targets of Homotherium, and how did it consume them after capturing them? This might seem like an unanswerable question, but the old adage, you are what you eat, applies to extinct saber-toothed cats as much as it does to our diets. Every meal the cat ate in its life left its mark on the predator's body, and especially on its teeth. But what are these marks, and what do they tell us? This was the central question of a paper published this year by Larissa DeSantis and her colleagues, who examined two aspects of homotherium teeth from Friesenhan Cave. The first was the microscopic pattern of wear produced on the teeth while eating, which can tell us about how an animal might have consumed its food. When a predator gnaws on or crushes a bone, its teeth are subjected to a lot of stress, leaving a complex series of pits and scratches in the enamel of its molars. Such complex patterns are common in hyenas, lions, and cougars, but not in Homotherium, whose less complex wear patterns suggest that it avoided the bone-crunching behavior of some of its relatives. At the same time, though, much of the wear on the Friesenhan cave teeth is oriented along a single axis, a pattern usually seen in predators that eat a lot of tough meat. So perhaps Homotherium focused on animals with thick hides, but stuck mainly to soft flesh around the bones rather than risking damaging their teeth on the hard skeleton. A few of the species found at Friesenhan Cave could fit the description of a tough-skinned herbivore, and another aspect of tooth enamel can help us pin down which of these were favored by Homotherium. When plants gather energy from the sun during photosynthesis, they can do so by a few different pathways each with its own chemical signature in the form of stable isotopes of carbon. The most widely used types of photosynthesis are C3, which is especially common in broadleaf trees, and C4, which is characteristic of most grasses. An animal living in a woodland environment is likely to eat mostly C3 plants, and its teeth will be rich in the carbon isotopes common in trees and shrubs. On the plains, though, herbivores will consume a higher percentage of grass and its characteristic carbon isotopes. When a predator eats one of these herbivores, it will accumulate the same carbon isotopes, meaning that a chemical analysis can tell you whether that predator prefers eating forest-living browsers, grassland-dwelling grazers, or a mixture of the two. In the case of the Friesenhan cave fossils, the results are clear. The homotherium living there preferred grazing prey, a category that includes horses, bison, and mammoths. The isotopes are an especially good match for the mammoths, but DeSantis and her colleagues were able to get even more specific. The chemical signature in the teeth of Homotherium is very similar to that in the teeth of baby mammoths, and here two lines of evidence come together to tell a compelling story. The bones of young mammoths are unusually common at Friesenhan Cave, 
and it's long been speculated that they may have been dragged there by the cave's big cats. This research backs up this interpretation. Look at all of these lines of evidence together, and a picture emerges of the San Antonian homotherium as predators that ambush juvenile mammoths, relying more on their arsenal of teeth to deliver the fatal blow than did many of their saber-toothed relatives, and dragging their prey back to their den in Friesenhahn Cave, where they would strip meat from bones rather than gnawing on them. Of course, no single line of evidence is ironclad. The isotopes analyzed from the cat's teeth are also not too different from those seen in horses or bison. The wear patterns on their molars may reflect only their last few meals, which might not be an accurate snapshot of their usual diet. Their relatively lightly built arms could reflect the evolutionary relationships or the size of Homotherium more directly than they do its hunting style, and biomechanical models that show that their bite could have delivered a deadly wound don't necessarily imply that they did use their jaws in this way. As so often in science, then, we're dealing with probabilities when it comes to reconstructing behavior in extinct animals. But when every single line of evidence seems to point in the same direction, we can be increasingly confident in our conclusions. The skeleton of Homotherium in the Texas Memorial Museum represents a species for which we do have multiple independent studies all pointing the same way. But you don't have to go far to find a pair of animals about which we know a lot less. Just turn around and look at the skeletons of Texas's iconic prehistoric animals. I mentioned the sails on the back of Demetrodon and Adaphosaurus earlier, which have made them among the fossil record's most recognizable creatures. They're distant relatives of ours, and of all mammals, but that evolutionary distance is so great that we really don't have any living animals to compare them to, and no species living today has sails that even remotely compare to theirs. Biomechanics and functional morphology can still provide valuable hints as to their behavior, but without clear modern comparisons, a widely agreed-upon explanation for the sails remains elusive. Probably the leading hypothesis is that they helped the animals control their body temperature, but it's also been suggested that they may have been involved in display, for distinguishing closely related species, for camouflage, and even for movement. In all likelihood, they serve some combination of functions. While we can speak to the behavior of Homotherium with a lot more certainty, it's always possible that new fossil discoveries or insight into their biology could change our interpretation or add an entirely new perspective to our picture of life in ancient San Antonio. And of course, there are many aspects of this cat's life that skeleton may not be helpful for understanding. Social behavior is one of these. Most cats alive today are solitary, with lions as the only major group-living exception. But many paleontologists, including yours truly, have suggested that some saber-toothed cats may have been social. This is based not on their anatomy, but on where they're found, and in what numbers. Does the abundance of saber-tooths at Rancho La Brea and Friesenhahn Cave suggest that Smilodon and Homotherium lived in large, lion-like prides? Or do they just happen to get preserved in large numbers at these sites over long periods of time? This aspect of saber-tooth behavior remains an area of active debate, but that's not the case for the species represented by one of the largest individual fossils on display in the Texas Memorial Museum. Just around the corner of the museum's centerpiece from Homotherium is the skull of what seems to have been its preferred prey, the Columbian mammoth. 
This elephant was a huge evolutionary success story and was widespread across North America during the Ice Ages. But a spectacular sight from central Texas illustrates not just that this species was highly social, but how different sexes and age groups interacted with one another. We'll hit the road from Austin in our next episode to explore this locality and what preservation can tell us about an extinct animal's behavior, and then return to the landscape of the hill country and the cityscape of San Antonio to discover how the behavior of even larger and much older animals literally left its mark on the geological record. Until then, you can catch up on older episodes and dive deeper into topics we've covered on the Voyages website, voyagepod.wordpress.com. You can also find out about the music featured on each episode, which in this case is an overview of Texan and Tejano music available on the Smithsonian Folkways label by the Fort Worth Symphony Orchestra and Los Tex Maniacs. As always, you can contact me with any feedback or suggestions for future episodes through the website or via email at voyagepod at gmail.com. And please do take a moment to rate, review, like, and subscribe to Voyages on the podcatcher of your choice, and tell your friends. Thanks for joining me on this first leg of the voyage deep into the hearts of fossils. I hope you'll join me for part two on the first Thursday in August and on all the voyages to come. The destinations discussed in this episode are on the traditional lands of the Waco, Sana, Kowalwitekan, Lipan Apache, Tonkawa, Humano, and Comanche peoples. Welcome aboard the Voyages podcast. I'm John Orcutt, and in this episode we're continuing our exploration of how we study behavior in the fossil record at sites in and around the Texas Hill Country. Since we're picking up right where we left off, if you haven't listened to the previous episode of Voyages, this would be a great time to go back and catch up before heading back here to move down from the hills and out onto the high plains. Brazos River feel a world apart from the craggy canyons of hill country. Up in the hills, you could be forgiven for thinking you were in New Mexico or Arizona, but the Brazos meanders across a landscape that feels more like Oklahoma or Kansas, profoundly flat and blanketed in farms. The very presence of those farms, though, hints at a close connection between the uplands and the plains. Crops grow well here because of the thick, nutrient-rich soils in the area. 
Some of these are deposited by the Brazos and other rivers as they flow by, but many are the remnants of floods. Water running off the Edwards Plateau has made the region at its base Flash Flood Alley. While swollen rivers overflowing their banks leave behind rich sediments ideal for agriculture, in the short term they can be catastrophic, and not only for our species. Long before any crops were grown there, the area around what would become Waco supported shrublands and grasslands that attracted one of the icons of Ice Age North America, the Columbian Mammoth. Like the modern elephants to which they're closely related, mammoths had diverse diets, and in many ways the floodplains would have been an ideal habitat for them. On rare occasions, though, they could also become death traps. Around 65,000 years ago, a group of mammoths on a narrow isthmus between the Brazos and Bosque rivers was caught by a flood, or possibly a landslide caused by a flood, and buried. This herd's tragedy, though, would turn out to be a windfall for paleontologists thousands of years later. The people of Waco recognized its importance as well, and thanks to their efforts, so did President Obama, who protected it as Waco Mammoth National Monument in 2015 preserving a unique and important window into the life of a species that went extinct millennia ago. the barn that was built over a particularly rich bone bed, though mammoth fossils have been found throughout the monument's grounds. Inside, several mostly complete skeletons of the giant animals lie splayed out below the walkway that wends its way through the building. The skeletons are preserved in muddy sediments similar to the soils you can still see along the monument's riverbanks today. At first glance, the story seems like a fairly easy one to interpret. A herd of mammoths living along the banks of the Ice Age Bosque River were caught in a flash flood, either drowning in the floodwaters themselves or being buried in the landslides it caused. The combination of several individuals preserved together and the sediments in which they're entombed suggests that the mammoths were social, much like their modern elephant relatives, and lived alongside the river for at least part of their lives. If this were all we could deduce from the site, it would still be a great example of how the context in which an animal is found can tell us about how it behaved in life, but none of the conclusions we might reach would be particularly complex or surprising. But the completeness of the skeletons is not the weirdest thing about them, and a little more study of the fossils reveals something very important. The pelvises of male and female mammoths are shaped slightly differently, which means that we can tell sexes apart, and when paleontologists at the monument began sexing the fossils, they realized that all the adult mammoths in the herd were female. There were males present, but these were either preserved in different areas or were juveniles. An even more detailed picture emerged from this research. The herd that was buried at Waco Mammoth was not just any group of animals, but a nursery herd. Elephants will also gather in nursery herds, where adult females travel alongside and protect youngsters. After reaching maturity, males strike out on their own, meaning that these herds consist almost entirely of adult females and calves. If mammoths behave similarly to their living relatives, then, you'd expect just the pattern we see at Waco Mammoth. But before we jump to conclusions, it's worth thinking a bit more about what the geology of the site can tell us.
The study of bone beds like Waco mammoths goes all the way back to the beginnings of paleontology in the 19th century, with large accumulations of animals having been interpreted as evidence of social behavior, be it among herding herbivores, pack-hunting predators, or species that gathered in groups to mate or raise their young. Any of these attempts to identify sociality, though, all hinge on a single, crucially important question. Did these animals actually live where they were found? Alarm bells should sound especially loudly when, as at Waco Mammoth, the fossils in question are preserved alongside a river. Rivers are, of course, habitats for a wide range of organisms, many of which do in fact spend their lives in or around the flowing waters. But rivers are also one of the strongest forces in nature, one of the few capable of transporting the carcasses of even enormous animals like mammoths, far from the environments in which they lived and died. Perhaps, then, the mammoths of Waco were actually the mammoths of Abilene, living their lives somewhere higher up in the Brazos watershed and being rafted downstream after death as gas formed during decomposition, leading to the phenomenon known in paleontology as bloat and float. In this scenario, the concentration of mammoths in Waco would mark the point where a sharp bend in the river, or a large sandbar, slowed the current's flow enough that the bodies were dumped there, not the site of a nursery herd's dramatic and tragic end. If this were the case, you could throw out all the conclusions about behavior we made earlier. The site might tell a dramatic geological story, but would be next to useless when it came to inferring anything about mammoth behavior. To figure out which explanation is more likely, you need someone with a knowledge of both biological processes and the geological processes of burial and fossilization. In other words, you need a taphonomist. Taphonomy is often colorfully described as the study of death, decay, and destruction, and the insight it provides on how organisms are preserved, and why many aren't, has important implications for all of paleontology. It's a field that has shot down many suggested lines of evidence for social behavior in the fossil record, but at Waco Mammoth it's bolstered the nursery herd hypothesis. If you visit the mammoth barn, you can see that most of the skeletons here, including nearly all the females and juveniles, are found in a single layer of muddy sediments. This supports the idea that all the animals here died in a single event. If the carcasses had accumulated over the course of years or centuries, they'd be found in several different layers. As is the case, for example, in the Park Service's most famous bone bed in Utah's Dinosaur National Monument. The clay in which they're entombed likewise supports the flash flood hypothesis, as it's exactly what you'd expect to see if a landslide caused by flooding buried the mammoths and prevented them from being swept downstream. If the bones had been deposited on a sandbar, on the other hand, you'd expect to see, well, sand surrounding them. The condition of the skeletons is also really important to understanding their taphonomy. They're mostly complete, whereas if they'd died elsewhere, you'd expect a combination of scavengers, decomposition, and strong currents to rip apart the carcasses into large chunks. Again, see the scattered skeletons of Dinosaur National Monument for a dramatic example. The nursery herd hypothesis holds up under the scrutiny of taphonomy, meaning that we stand on fairly solid ground when we say that mammoths shared many social behaviors with their elephant relatives. But not every behavior attributed to the Waco mammoths has such solid taphonomic footing. In 2016, a new perspective on the mammoths emerged when a team out of Waco's Baylor University published a paper on the site's taphonomy. 
They identified what they interpreted as minor but widespread damage to bones by plant roots and scavenging animals. If this is the case, it could mean that the bodies of the mammoth spent more time on the surface of the site before being buried than had previously been thought. The authors suggested that, rather than a catastrophic flood, the Waco mammoths died during a drought as they clustered around a dwindling watering hole, being buried by a landslide only after the fact. Other researchers quickly responded by pointing out that the clustering of the skeletons, their completeness, and very limited weathering were all in favor of the classic flood and landslide hypothesis. As always in science, the debate will continue as new evidence rolls in, and as old data are interpreted using new tools. But at the end of the day, neither interpretation of how the animals died alters the picture of the Columbian mammoth as a social animal traveling in nursery herds of females and juveniles. The Baylor team did, however, cast a lot of doubt on a popular interpretation of the behavior of one particular mammoth. Thousands of years after the nursery herd was buried, another mammoth died and was preserved along the Bosque River. Nicknamed Q, this mammoth stands out because of its huge size and because it's an adult male. Because male elephants leave the herd when they reach maturity, and because the composition of the Waco herd suggests male mammoths did the same, you'd expect that Q would be found isolated from other individuals. If you visit Waco Mammoth, though, you can see that the same layer in which Q is buried also contains skeletons of two juvenile mammoths, nicknamed R and V. In fact, R is preserved so close to Q that it appears to be nestled in the bigger animal's tusks. Does this mean that Q was actually interacting with R when they both died? Was Q perhaps trying to hoist R out of the ravine in which they were trapped during a flood? It's a dramatic scene, one that would have radical implications for parental care in mammoths, and one that's been entertained by several researchers at the site. The Baylor team, however, showed that it was far more likely that the two mammoths were swept together by river currents after death. They also pointed out that, given the often aggressive behavior of male elephants, even if you do buy that the two individuals were interacting when they died, it's far more likely that Hugh was attacking, not rescuing, R. In this case, Taphonomy throws cold water on what would be an incredible moment frozen in time and a unique window into the life of a long-extinct species. But that doesn't mean we can't say anything about Q's behavior, the most compelling evidence of which comes not from taphonomy, but paleopathology. Any animal, living or extinct, will experience injury and disease over the course of its life, and occasionally their bodies retain marks of these experiences. Paleopathologists look for such marks and interpret them in light of how fossil animals interacted with their environment. Q has a pathology so glaring it's clearly visible from the walkway, a large lump on a rib that shows where the bone was fractured and later healed. These kinds of injuries are common in male elephants, who often fight one another over mates, so the likeliest explanation for Q's broken rib is that he engaged in exactly the same behavior. Not every example of paleopathology is quite so straightforward, but they all amount to the same thing. Some aspect of the environment leaving a mark on a fossil. In some dramatic cases, though, the tables are turned, and an animal leaves an indelible mark on its environment. To see what this can tell us about behavior, it's time to leave the plains of Waco and return to the hill country, where you can find traces of animals far larger and far older than mammoths.
ask for a better introduction to the hill country than a hike through Government Canyon State Natural Area, just west of San Antonio. The Joe Johnston Route, the park's mainline trail, wanders along the base of a water-worn canyon for a little more than two miles and is rich in the plant and animal life that makes the region unique and so ecologically important. From there, a spur trail leads you up to Canyon Overlook, a beautiful vista from which the hill's geology snaps into focus. You can see the flat hilltops and the maze of canyons carved into them, a testament to how this is a landscape formed by erosion. What you can't see from this raven's eye view are the fossils found in the rocks beneath your feet that tell a far deeper time story of environmental change. Over the course of the Cretaceous period, 140 to 66 million years ago, this part of Texas was occasionally submerged, which is why animals such as clams, fish, and marine reptiles are often found in the area. At other times, though, sea levels dropped, and what had been seafloor became a coastline, and the fossil record shifts to one of land-living animals. Dinosaurs are the most common of these fossils, but with a few exceptions, it's not their bones that we find preserved here. Much more common are traces, a type of fossil that preserves evidence of an animal without preserving the animal itself. A burrow dug by a shrimp can become a trace fossil, and so can a hole bored by a clam. Where dinosaurs are concerned, the most commonly found traces are tracks, originally left as footprints in soft sediments. It takes special conditions for these tracks to be preserved, and Cretaceous Texas seems to have had just the right ingredients, because trackways have been found throughout the hill country. You can get an aerial view of two of them from the canyon overlook, and then descend back down to walk alongside them and get a sense for how these natural wonders form. The first thing you're likely to notice is that two very clearly different species pass by here, one leaving large, round, elephant-like tracks, the other leaving smaller, though still huge, three-toed tracks. Look at the limestone rocks in which the footprints are visible. Rather than being composed of large grains of sand, the particles that make them up are, for the most part, too small to see with the naked eye, meaning that they started as mud, exactly the kind of surface you'd pick if you wanted to record impressions of an animal's tracks. If you've ever left your own tracks on a beach at low tide and returned the next day, you know that it doesn't take much wave action to completely obliterate a footprint. The dinosaurs that left these tracks were far bigger than any human, meaning they left deeper and more durable impressions, but it's still likely that they were filled in and buried by other sediments fairly quickly, before wind and waves could destroy them. Once buried, of course, they had to be exposed again for us to find them, and it's easy to see the force that made this possible, the same force that shaped all of Government Canyon's landscape. The creek that parallels the trail to the trackway is often fairly dry, but when it runs full, its water wears away the limestone rocks below and exposes any fossils preserved there, which is why these and many other Texan trackways are found in creek beds. This same process not only unearths footprints, but slowly eats away at them, which can make trackways in natural settings like Government Canyon a bit indistinct. And, quick PSA, human feet speed this process along considerably, so please respect the barriers that have been set up at Government Canyon and walk alongside the dinosaurs, not in their footsteps. Just up the road, though, is a site where human activity took the place of natural erosion to spectacular effect and where the value of footprints for interpreting the behavior of extinct animals becomes clear.
The natural erosion that takes place throughout the hill country is, usually, a slow process. But around Canyon Lake, just north of San Antonio, you can see what happens when human activity speeds up the process, exposing large dinosaur trackways in good condition. Canyon Lake itself is not natural, but instead formed behind a dam on the Guadalupe River. In 2002, record rainfall led to a huge stream of water escaping over the dam's spillway, pressure washing away the sediments below and gouging out Canyon Lake Gorge. This is another case of a natural disaster working out as a net positive for paleontologists, because the freshly exposed rocks were full of fossils, including dinosaur trackways that you can visit on guided tours today. An even more impressive dinosaur track site, though, was exposed not through erosion, but by excavation. Following the discovery of a footprint-rich rock layer during road construction in the 1980s, the overlying rocks and sediments were removed, and a roof was built over the site to protect the Lone Star State's best-preserved and most accessible dinosaur tracks at what is now the Heritage Museum of Texas Hill Country. There are over 200 tracks here, representing as many as 28 individuals, though it's possible, even probable, that a few of the trackways were made by the same animal walking along the same stretch of beach more than once. The footprints are similar to those at Government Canyon, some three-toed, some rounded, but are in much better condition. There are traces of other animals here as well, including the trails of large snails, and it's one of these that show just how valuable trace fossils can be in shedding light not just on the lives of extinct species, but of individual organisms. Most of the snail trails are straight lines, but in one case a second line parallels the main trail. It's been suggested that this snail may have been injured, possibly knocking its shell sideways, and that the second trace is the shell's drag mark. The dinosaur tracks, though, are the ones that most palpably bring the past to life. The trackways form in long lines that mark the path of a single dinosaur as it walked across the beach, and you can follow these 110 million year old trails as easily as if they'd been laid down yesterday. You could calculate the speed at which an individual is moving. All you need is the distance between the tracks and an estimate of how long the animal's legs were, though as far as I've been able to find, no one's actually estimated the speed of the Canyon Lake dinosaurs. The fact that each individual trackway follows its own path rather than all of them being aligned along a single axis might suggest that the dinosaurs here traveled individually, not in large social groups. At another site in the hill country, the trackway of a sauropod, the long-necked group of dinosaurs, seems to consist only of the front two feet, leading some paleontologists to suggest that the animal was moving through shallow water with its hind legs floating above the surface, though it's worth noting that the jury is very much still out on this particular debate. The list of what trackways can tell us about dinosaur behavior goes on and on, and for once I don't feel the need to belabor the point, because unlike the other lines of evidence we've discussed during the last two episodes, trackways as clear as the one at the Heritage Museum don't require a huge amount of specialized knowledge to be able to interpret. When you stand on the museum's walkway, you really do feel like you're standing on the edge of the Cretaceous Ocean, and the trackways can be read in much the same way that those of birds or nesting sea turtles might be read on the modern Texas coastline 100 miles to the southeast. Unlike footprints on a modern beach, we can't simply look up from the Canyon Lake trackways to identify what made them. And this disconnect between tracks and track makers is perhaps the biggest challenge when it comes to interpreting dinosaur behavior based on their footprints. It's very rare to find the body of any animal literally preserved in its tracks. 
Some horseshoe crabs from the Jurassic of Germany are the only examples I know of. For this reason, ichnologists, researchers who specialize in trace fossils, have a system for naming traces that is completely separate from the usual naming system for all other organisms, living and extinct. In the case of the Texas trackways, though, we can make a well-educated guess as to which dinosaurs made which tracks. The most abundant footprints are the ones made by a three-toed, two-legged dinosaur. Three-toed feet are a defining feature of one group of dinosaurs in particular, the theropods, or carnivorous dinosaurs, which include such celebrities as Tyrannosaurus and Velociraptor, and all living birds, which, with the exception of oddities like parrots and woodpeckers, still leave footprints that look amazingly similar to those of their land-living ancestors. There's one especially strong candidate for which specific theropod once roamed the heart of Texas, and you can see it at San Antonio's Witty Museum, which displays not only a reconstructed trackway, but a cast of the skeleton of Acrocanthosaurus striding along it. Acrocanthosaurus was a large theropod, a somewhat distant relative of the older and better-known Allosaurus, and it's been found throughout the southern U.S. from sites of about the same age as the Hill Country trackways, including one just outside of Fort Worth. It's the right size, shape, and age to account for the three-toed tracks, though a few may have been left by ornithopods, a group of plant-eating dinosaurs that also had three-toed feet. The large, round footprints were probably left by sauropods, possibly the magnificently named Sauroposeidon, whose bones have also been found just outside the Metroplex. But as impressive as the Woody Museum's centerpiece may be, and as founded as it is in educated guesswork, Barring a truly spectacular discovery, we may never be able to say for certain whether Acrocanthosaurus really was the track maker. Just as we usually can't definitively match tracks to track makers, we can't match behaviors based on footprints to a particular dinosaur species. The other big problem that arises when working with trackways is timing. When we look at the Canyon Lake trackways, it's tempting to read them as a single busy day at the beach, during which many dinosaurs wandered across the landscape in a short amount of time. But even two trackways that cross each other might not mean that two different dinosaurs were in the same place at the same time. They could have passed through the area hours apart, or maybe even days or weeks apart. And another famous Texan trackway shows what happens when paleontologists don't stop to make these considerations. Glen Rose lies well north of the hill country, but the Texas Memorial Museum in Austin displays a section of footprints discovered there in the 1930s. The description of the track should sound familiar by now. One set was made by a three-toed theropod, the other by a round-footed sauropod. What's odd about the Glenrose tracks is that the two trackways parallel each other, which led their discoverer, Roland T. Bird, to suggest that the theropod was stalking the sauropod. If true, this would be a stunning example of hunting behavior preserved in the fossil record, but sadly there's no compelling evidence that the tracks were made at the same time. Likewise, Suggestions that large accumulations of footprints might indicate social behavior in dinosaurs could just as easily be explained as several trackways of solitary individuals made over the course of several weeks in an area that, for whatever reason, had a lot of dinosaur traffic. In fact, none of the lines of evidence for reconstructing behavior are ironclad, in and of themselves, which is why it's so important that we consider all of them, morphology, taphonomy, and ichnology, when trying to figure out how ancient animals interacted with their environments. To see how these lines of evidence can come together, we need look no further than the same dragon-like gargantuan that began our exploration of Texan fossils.
Just as a skeleton of the giant pterosaur Quetzalcoatl soars above the main hall of the Texas Memorial Museum, a life-size model of the same animal dominates the entryway to the Witte Museum. In San Antonio, as in Austin, its size is what impresses most, and indeed, when Quetzalcoatl was first discovered, it was the sheer scale of the animal that got the most attention. In the subsequent decades, though, morphology, taphonomy, and ichnology have come together to reveal just how one of the largest flying animals ever might have lived. Taphonomy and morphology, for example, have been used as evidence for what type of food it may have consumed. While many large pterosaurs were found in marine rocks and presumably fed mostly on fish in a way similar to modern albatrosses, Quetzalcoatl was found along the Rio Grande, which even with the higher sea levels of the Cretaceous was well inland. Its discoverers suggested that it may have been a scavenger, consuming the dead bodies of the large dinosaurs found in the same area. But later studies suggested that the stiff neck and straight snout were very unlike the flexible necks and hooked beaks of scavenging birds. Another study suggested that its limb proportions, similar to those of some hoofed mammals, and stork-like head and neck may indicate that it was a land-living predator. Ichnology and morphology have been brought to bear on how Quetzalcoatl moved. While no trackways have been attributed to Quetzalcoatl specifically, tracks of other pterosaurs show that they moved around on four limbs when on the ground. The big question, though, is how could something this huge fly? Early estimates of its weight simply suggested that it couldn't, though its large wings seemed to suggest it could. Later research indicated that, among other things, its lightly built bones and the large holes in its skull would have made it light enough to fly, and biomechanical analyses have made the case that Quetzalcoatl and its relatives expended a huge amount of energy to push themselves off the ground, but once airborne could have soared on thermals like many large birds today. The discussions around how giant pterosaurs flew and what they ate show no signs of wrapping up anytime soon, and there are other aspects of their biology about which we effectively know nothing. For example, unlike mammoths, we really don't know how they interacted with other members of the same species. Nevertheless, the fact that we can infer enough about this incredible species, the last member of which died tens of millions of years ago, to paint a picture, or as the case may be, build a model, of it as a living, breathing animal is a testament to just how much we can glean about the behavior of fossil organisms when specialists in different areas of paleontology put their heads together. for joining me on this voyage deep into the hearts of fossils. As always, to dive deeper into any of the destinations and concepts from this episode, our previous episode, or anywhere else we've visited, drop by our website at voyagepod.wordpress.com. While you're there, drop me a line to suggest topics for future episodes, or to send me a question or comment, which you can also do by emailing me at voyagepod at gmail.com. While on the site, you can learn about the music featured in each episode, as with our previous show, this one mainly featured Texan and Tejano music from the Smithsonian Folkways label, but also included a musical depiction of the Colombian mammoth by California composer Jennifer Stevenson. If you enjoy Voyages, please rate, review, like, and subscribe on the podcatcher of your choice. It's the best way to introduce the show to new listeners besides, of course, telling your friends, so please do that, too. I'll be back with a new episode in two weeks, 
and I hope you'll join me then and for all the voyages to come.